Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I am Mel Cranenberg and today is a very special episode of Backstory. I have a long form interview to play for you. Author Helen Garner, a prolific writer of novels, short stories and acutely observed long form narrative nonfiction among them Monkey Grip, The Children's Bark, The Controversial First Stone, Joe Sinquay's Consolation and This House of Grief. Helen Garner recently published an edited collection of her diaries spanning 1978 to 1987, which is just in the years following uh, the publication of Monkey Grip. Yellow Notebook Diaries Volume 1 is at once deeply personal and a compelling insight into Garner's writing process. To quote from Garner's cover note, this diary is a stream of fragments, a record of the world as it struck me on my way through, people I've known, things that happened to me or that I did or saw or dreamt or thought, also weather and shoes and landscape and music and what I read and how I learned to write. I met Helen Garner for a wide-ranging interview last week and it will be the focus of today's show. We talked about how she went about creating Yellow Notebook, all those acutely observed works of narrative non-fiction, her thoughts on post-Me Too feminism and, of course, her complex relationship with writing. I actually like writing. I mean, I like pens and I like paper and I like writing things down and it gives me a lot of pleasure and it always has and I, I I've never understood why I don't under, I don't understand people who don't have a diary I, I think how do they manage how do, how do they stop from going nuts or, or losing control of everything I was thinking about this while reading through you know your diary or notebooks um, that Really, when you're you're kind of putting your craft out there, you sort of want to, I guess, have an opportunity to practice it. But it's not something you really think about when you're a writer. It's it's both a vocational and a, and something that you're sort of compelled to do in mm-hmm. a way, um, because otherwise, why the hell would you do a job that uh, that requires so much of you and really in turn gives so little, um, you know, when it comes to definitely money uh, <laughs> and many other things. I really felt that this was, uh, you know, evidence of not just you exercising your writerly muscles, but also a reflection on that sort of complex relationship with writing. I, mm. I want to read a bit that, that really sort of uh, struck me. You said, in the metro this morning on my way to the library, I felt grey and shriveled, watching the tunnel lights slip past in their rhythm, wishing that I spoke French twice as well as I do and had a real job with people I didn't particularly like so I wouldn't have to produce my own raison d'etre every day like a spider yanking thread out of its own guts or wherever the hell they pull it from. (laughs) What, What were you thinking in that moment? Well, I do. I, I greatly envy people who have jobs. Um, I haven't had a job since 1972 when I got when I was a teacher and got the sack from teaching. I haven't actually since then really had a job that involved turning up, saying good morning to everyone, and uh, getting on with getting on with it. And I, there's there's a sort of um, companionableness I, I note I can see in other people's workplaces that I. I envy, and yet I, I kind of know that it doesn't suit me. It wouldn't suit me because I'm so whatever it is that I am. Whatever is that quality that makes it necessary for me to keep a diary um, is probably the, the quality that makes me not um, be a very good um, work companion. <laughs> I, I th- but I, I do. 
I do envy the idea that your work has got something to do with the other with the people you're with at that moment rather than like that image in that bit you just read out about having to sort of haul it out of your own guts every day and I at, at times of discouragement or failure or fear I feel that as a terrible um burden really the fact that that's what writing is it's not something you it seems to me to be something very kind of deep and and um sort of visceral absolutely i mean it's sort of an interesting thing to contrast something like that this real feeling that writing is pulling something from out of your guts you know to compare that to another observation you make later on where you, you talk about how writing something really, you know, makes you sort of the master of all you survey. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought th- these are the real highs and lows of writing. Yes, well, when, when you write something and you, you feel that you've got whatever it was in you into words, that you've articulated something, even if it's just one tiny, <clears throat> just one tiny observation or... Or sensation, there is a, feel, a momentary feeling of power, uh, of sort of power over your circumstances, perhaps, or just a sense of even in the most primitive way, a sense of competence. There is something you can do. Uh, you can put a sentence together, or some words that have got a meaning, and that other people might find meaning in them as well. That that is a, a wonderful. Um, um, well, I was going to say gift. I don't mean gift in the sense of being gifted, but uh, just some sort of little power that you have as a writer uh, where where you're not so completely overwhelmed by what's around you and inside you. I had the strangest feeling reading this book because I, I feel like, you know, I, firstly I want to know how you put it together. How did you put it together? This book starts in 1978 when I was living in Paris with my daughter briefly and uh, – it, it starts there because I burnt all the diaries that went before it. I, I really just couldn't stand them. <laughs> and they were and they kind of junk up the house. You know, there's an awful lot of exercise books in, um, in uh, cardboard cartons lying around in laundries. And, and I, I had a look at um, – oh, I know what it was. It was that I was, I was thinking about the dismissal of the Whitlam government mm. and I wondered what I'd written about that. So I looked up the the book at the date, and uh, and to my amazement, I found that I hadn't even mentioned it. Although I mentioned, you know, I remember when it happened, and we were all, you know, rushing down to the streets to demonstrate, and it was really thrilling. But when I looked in my diary, it it wasn't even there, and uh, and I was struck by this, and I thought, uh, well, I better have a look at these diaries and see, you know, if they're really as crap as I suddenly thought they were, and and everything that was before. The date at which this book starts, which is in in 1978, seemed to me really self-obsessed and whingy and, you know, all the worst side of that kind of monkey grip period. And then around the time I was living in Paris, it seemed to open out. The the diary seemed to be less concerned with the the minutiae of my uh, emotional development (laughs) or failure to develop. And and it seemed that I started to sort of look around me more. And I I felt there was a little shot of energy that came into the text around that point. So I made a big fire out the back and I burnt all the ones up to that point. And that was really the best fun is burning stuff. And I, ne- I never have regretted it. I, I burnt, you know, several years' worth of stuff. And I'm then, sure there are many people that are crying right now to, oh, to no. think about well, you They, doing they that, shouldn't but... shed any tears over that loss. You know, really, it's not a loss at all, but it's a clearing of the decks. And so anyway, so that's just a long answer to your question, that I, I when I um, my publisher said, oh, why don't you look at the diaries and see if you want to publish them? I got out the books and and started reading through them and I thought, well, I'll, I'll just start transcribing. And I I basically just read through – I had it next to me at the computer and uh, I'd be working page after page and anything that looked interesting or had any sort of freshness to it or uh, seemed to be um, 
something that anybody else might be interested in, I copied that down. So it was really just a matter of sort of filleting. I was just cutting off all the mm. fat and crap that was, you know, clogging that. Because in any piece of writing, there is, if it's any good, there's a sort of a line of muscle that runs through it. And, and, and what makes it not good is all the crap that's clinging on the outside of that muscle. And you've got to, like, well, I was going to use a violent image, jackhammer it off. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I, I love that process. I, I actually love editing and, and I, I, my, my own stuff and I, I love editing other people's stuff, uh, well, helping them to edit it really, just because you can feel that line of muscle is there. It's a sinew, it's muscle, it's full of life and, and, and power, but it's clogged. And the cloggingness is what you can get rid of. You can strip it off. It comes off. You peel it off. And so that's what the process was of putting this uh, diary together. Yeah, it, they really do feel like finely crafted micro stories in, in many ways. And in fact, I was just thinking when you were talking about this idea of looking back at your diaries during the Whitlam years and, and then real, or during the dismissal and realising you hadn't even mentioned it, but you'd reflected at one point in your diary that, uh, that historians had, you know, discovered these uh, diaries of women writing during the French Revolution that don't mention it at all and you're saying, I'm not at all surprised by that. <laughs> No, I'm not because nobody's going to look out the window and going, ooh, there's a revolution. No, it's not like <laughs> it happens in five life. minutes. It's just a whole lot of changes happen. And uh, and also that obviously there are some people who keep diaries which are very much concerned with outer events. I mean like there are uh, politicians' diaries and diplomats' diaries and things like that that I, I wouldn't read because I'm not interested in, in that kind of – if I read someone's diary – I am interested in um, their relationship with themselves and and their and the intimacies of life. But I'm not interested only in that. I mean, for example, if I read um, when I back in the seventies, we all read An- Anais Nin's diaries, which at the time probably those were the first diaries I ever read, except Virginia Woolf's, which of course is just absolutely magnificent. But uh, Anais Nin, I mean, really, just it's revolting. Her, it's all this wallowing crap about you know her sex life, and you know I should talk after monkey grip. But um, but uh, yeah, I, I found them disgusting, and and um, a, a sort of psycho, a psychological wallowing in herself, and I um, was horrified to think that anyone might imagine that my diary was going to be like that. You've pulled in a lot of quotes from, you know, that have struck you, which I think is sort of wonderful in that uh, while reading this, I was writing down (laughs) quite a lot of quotes that struck me in this wonderful echo chamber. Uh, You know, things that you'd observed written up as kind of, you know, little almost scripts or screenplays, like mini ones that uh, that really I feel like I want to know more about that story. There, There felt like so many starts to bigger stories in there. You know, how much of this was sort of a process of going through and thinking, you know, feeling like there's there's more to tell in each of those and how much were you happy to just sit in that little kind of moment and mm. reflect on it? Yeah, well, that's interesting because I, I, I did, as I was working my way through, every now and then I, I'd come upon something and I'd think, gee, there's a story there. Why didn't I write that? And I don't really know the answer to that question. I think people write what they need to write at a particular time uh, and a lot of the things that I made notes of in the diaries were I I could see they were potential I mean I didn't write them because they were a potential beginning to some something I wrote them just because they snagged my attention like for example you know the fat man in the cafe who uh, who's looking out the window and he sees the woman about to book his his car and his behavior uh, I, I was fascinated by the different postures his body took as he approached this uh, parking officer and trying to sort of weasel his way out of getting a ticket. And I, and I suppose that there, there are things in in that book that people who've read other things of mine, other books of mine, will recognise as, um, you know, the, the original source of... Like there's a little bird in this book mm. somewhere that flits over a tomato patch and sits on a fence 
opening its beak like a tiny pair of scissors and singing song after song. And when when I found that in the diary, I thought, oh, damn, I thought I'd made that up and it was in the children's bar. I wasn't, you know, I mean, I won't lie, I was going through trying to find clues from the starts of things, things throughout, and of course they're there. Um, and I was thinking about an interview I heard with you uh, where you talk about, you know, um, I think you quote Philip Roth saying that, you know, essentially novelists are writing one long novel throughout their careers. And I thought that was particularly interesting because you said that is true of you. Um, And reading this, uh, I can kind of see, in a sense, this sort of atology of like a a writer's life, uh, these little pieces that you have swept together to, you know, really inform the bigger works. Is this really, I mean... I think the, something else you said was that, you know, really it's it's a, writing is really your way of navigating life uh, mm. and it's a reflection of your navigation of life. In part, is that why you feel like it's a, a good thing to, to show these notebooks because it kind of gives that map? Uh, no, I hadn't consciously thought of that. I, I just, you see, I think on the back of the, of the cover... Uh, on the jacket, it says something about there's a little list of things that the, that's in the book, and and I, what I like about the book, is that it is very fragmentary, that it's it's made up of little chunks, and um, I kept trying to think of images, because you see, when you tell people you're going to publish your diary, they look alarmed. People have a look of, um, especially if they know you and they think they might be in it. Uh, people get get a strange look on their face, and and I and in order to um, reassure them, I, I would try and describe what the diary had turned into after I'd done all that work on it. You know, filleting off the the um, fat, and it seemed to me, you know, I had different images. I thought, of, what I want is for people to jump into this as if it was a river and go bobbing along, and every now and then they come across. A, a sort of a rock or or they go oh there's a landscape you know as they go sweeping down the, down the stream but it's hard to describe it does feel a little like reading Virginia Woolf's The Waves in a sense I feel like you're sort of you know I mean that's quite a structured work but mm. this feels like that in a sense where mm. you're sort of like coming across something that suddenly casts other things in a different light or mm. gives well, you a but that's of kind whole. of um that, that's sort of uh, well, I was going to say accidental. I mean, I, I didn't because it because it is by its very nature chronological, and it, it's sort of um, it, it's. I keep thinking of words like frozen or stuck, but I I, I don't mean that. I mean that it, the, the 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 actual chronology of events is um, unchangeable. You know, I didn't move things around. I um, so that. You do get a sense of uh, of a consciousness kind of developing as it goes along, and uh, and I, I was happy about that as I could see that it was happening. Uh, but it, it, I couldn't say that I'd, I'd sort of you know masterfully steered <laughs> steered my way through the material. I, I I was kind of trapped in what it was. I couldn't change that, and and that was one thing I realised about about um, a diary. That that's the kind of gruesome part of publishing it is that you although it's completely composed of voice it hasn't got a voiceover there's no self-exculpating voice in there that would say oh my god look when back in um, 1979 I did this of course now I'm a much more sophisticated person and I would never do anything like that or morally I've cleaned up my act and although I did x back in that year now I'm a much better person you can't do that you can do that in memoir you can look back in memoir and say god I was such a bitch and such an idiot back then but of course I'm much more a better person now you can't do that and and sometimes I found that so excruciating when I was putting it together and when I got that feeling I thought okay this bit I will not leave out I'll make myself put it in I could really feel those elements in there there's some you know you write with you know with like a great honesty but also beautifully crafted scenes describing a fight that you had with your ex-partner, this moment 
where your your daughter is sitting an entrance exam to a selective school and you know your feeling of like maternal violence <laughs> <laughs> that she's going through some kind of pain so there's there's those things in there um, but there's also this incredible humor you're you know really uh, I think one of the the wonderful elements of allowing you know your honest alone self to sort of bubble up is that you you do get these um, these these bits there's there's quite a lot of humor about writing as well as a lot of self-flagellation <laughs> about writing um, there was one little bit that I have to read um, after dinner the power went off and the house was dark we sat quietly by the fire talking about syntax and whether it was snobbery and a misuse of power to criticize the mangling of it she opined that Murray Bale did not put that split infinitive in the first line of homesickness on purpose he didn't even know she said yeah, well, uh, that is characteristic of the sort of conversation that I have with certain friends of mine. Not the uh, not the specifics of particular writers, but just talking about syntax and punctuation is uh, pretty interesting. You don't can't find many people that are into it, though. No, well, I mean, this delighted me quite a lot. <laughs> but look, within uh, you know a few beats, you're talking about something else quite. Uh, quite personal. G talks about telling his daughter he's leaving. I'm grief laden, he says. I walk around laden with grief. He's standing very straight with his back against the street window of Notturno, like a man facing a firing squad. The fact that you're sort of covering so much territory in, in such short spaces is really one of the most powerful things about reading this. I felt like I have never, you know, I needed to read it slowly. I am still kind of going through things because I've had to turn back to sort of feel the impact of, of some of what you've written. Did you find that yourself? Because obviously reading, you don't often reread diaries, or at least I don't. No. Um, how did you feel when you were going back through this? Was it sort of like a time capsule that sort of released some of the the feelings and thoughts that you had at the time? What, mm. what was its impact on you? Well, it was pretty complex. Actually, it was quite traumatic, to tell the truth. I suppose it took me about a year and a half to pull that together, to, you know, to sort of jackhammer off all the rubbishy parts. But it, it was – I was quite shocked by some of it. I was shocked by um, my foolishness and my uh, – one thing I realised was, of course, that um, – you know how in a diary you're usually trying to uh, put your own point of view on things. If you if you're having if you're fighting with someone or like in a a, a broken you know marriage is breaking up, the things that you that the other person says about your character you completely um, reject them. Think how can he possibly have said such a thing? But when when I went back and and read through a lot of that, I, I was deeply mortified to see how true a lot of the things. Uh, that certain people, not just my ex-husband, but had said about me how true they were and how I'd been fighting fighting them off, as one does. There's nothing worse than someone telling you the truth about yourself and you'll fight it <laughs> till your dying day. It's quite not true, to accept though, it. but sometimes that's not necessarily done with the empathy that it deserves. No, it? exactly. But when, but you see, that's another thing um, about hindsight is is you look back and. Actually, in my reading group, we've been reading uh, T.S. Eliot for quartets, and uh, and there's that passage in it where he talks about um, and last the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have been and done, of things ill done and done to others' harm that once you took for exercise of virtue, and I find that absolutely shattering, and they apply. In many to many ways, to what's in the diary, just the the excruciation of seeing how you hurt people and how you trampled across them, and trumpeting your own uh, rights and your own virtues, or what you saw as virtues, or your own uh, prerogatives. And I, I was um, sometimes I found this so mortifying. In in my I've got a little office that I rent and I to work in and I I've got a little mat on the floor because I can have a nap after lunch. But sometimes I just had to go and lie on this and howl. Mm. I thought, 
God, how awful. How could I have said that? How could I have done that? And of course, that marriage couldn't last. I mean, look at me. I was blah, blah, blah. You know, you get the picture. I have to say one of the great powers that you have as a writer is exactly what, you know, we're hearing evidence of now. It's this real honesty. And an unwillingness to censor yourself. I truly believe while reading this that when you say cutting off the bad bits, you don't mean self-censoring. I feel like you mean tightening up the writing. Oh, yes, completely, yeah. I'm talking about all that all that jackhammering that I'm mentioning is, is all about the bad writing, the, the clogging of the writing that makes it um, – that, that – sort of fogs it and bogs it down. How do you balance that though? Because, you know, great writing does require a sacrifice and that sacrifice is, you know, that sort of uncompromising honesty, putting yourself in a place that can feel kind of dangerous at times. How do you balance that um, with, you know, the benefits and the negatives of, of really putting those things about yourself that you feel uncomfortable about out there? I guess I wish everyone would do that, you see. I think the world would be better if people would scrutinise themselves more severely. I, I know that probably makes me sound like some terrible Puritan, but well, I am one. But um, I, I'm actually quite shocked often at how unreflective people can be about their, their own behaviour. And it seems to me that one of the, the jobs, that the tasks of of being a person is to examine yourself with really rigorously and that's one of the that's one of the things that a diary can do of course i mean it's one of its um purposes i suppose although i i never i never sit down thinking all right now i'm going to write about i'm now i'm going to examine myself i i've just i think got into the habit of doing it and it's very stabilizing it's um, well. It's, uh, this is especially true since I, um, what twenty years ago, I I was in um, psychoanalytic psychotherapy for a couple of years, and I found that very painful and very very useful, and it fed into writing as well and thinking about writing. And the one thing about being in psychotherapy, I mean, you know, the the really hard sort where you're actually lying on the couch, you know, writhing, <laughs> is uh, learn, learning to, you know, what they call free associate, which means saying, uh, just talking, just rambling, basically talking, uh, saying the things that that come and and wander through your mind, and and those are very. Um, revealing of of what's going on under the noisy surface of everything and I and, and I once I realized that I could do that when I was uh, with my psychotherapist there are all sorts of leaps that occur in that process the connections you know you're just talking about one thing and suddenly you leap to something else and there's a sort of a lightning flash of meaning that happens and that process with her um, I found I could um, apply in writing. And, and what I'm talking about is taking risks, leaping from one thing to another uh, and risking that you're not losing the essential thread and that the reader will go with you and not go, what was she talking about? Oh, bugger this and throw the book away. Mm. The, the idea of that that there's a kind of, you know, it's erotic in the sense of eros, you know, that little the force of, of nature that kind of ignites things that are different from each other and causes them to combine. I'm, I found that very, um, very useful. And, and I learned a lot in this regard from um, reading Janet Malcolm, who's a writer who's greatly influenced me and been terrifically useful to me. Just just pushing, pushing things in, um, in my writing that I wouldn't have, that I wouldn't have once, um, kind of dared to acute observation is of course the thing for which you are best known uh, in your writing this amazing um, sense that you can bring a scene to life with just a few small sort of uh, brush strokes but I you know I actually sometimes find you know uh, when I have read your books that there's almost a Dickensian level of description in there like you you kind of just really bring in like 
all of these characters that are otherwise peripheral characters that really make a, say, courtroom scene that could otherwise be just one of the most deadly dull scenes if you were just literally quoting what people were saying into something that is an incredible drama. Mm. I remember you bringing to life lawyers, uh, giving them a character just by virtue of the way they walk into a room, the background, you know, those wonderful sort of tunnels you've dug behind your characters in that sort of Virginia Woolfian sense. How do you kind of uh, work through that? Because I sort of see evidence in this notebook of of your sort of, you know, interest in observation. Is it something that's always been with you or is it something you developed as a writer over time? Oh, both, I think. I, I think... Um, well, actually, an early draft of, uh, of that book, This House of Grief, about the Farquharson trial, uh, I had got really bogged down. It was a really thick, bad, awful draft and I showed it to one of my sisters. I didn't know it was bad at this point. I thought it was all right. And she said, oh, I put it down. She said it was really boring and she threw that terrible bucket of cold water over me. But I, I also showed it to Hilary McPhee who kindly read it for me and 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 also to a um, to a friend of mine who's a, um, a defence um, lawyer in America and and she said they they all said basically this is supposed to be a story and and uh, that 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 was very useful to me i looked at it and i thought oh yeah it's all bogged down i've written everything because the thing about it going to a trial is everything is interesting there's so much stuff in there that's interesting that you could go on and on and on forever and write a huge bat, fat book and and it would be quite dull but i mean you know in my first draft i even had things like the judge saying to the jury, um, now you're going to be taken to the um, the scene of the alleged crime tomorrow. Um, you'll be taken there in a bus and make sure to wear uh, good solid shoes because there might be mud. And so that's the kind of thing I love, you know. So I wrote that down and I put it in my draft and, and I, I thought, that's pathetic. I mean, I love it, but it's not taking the story anywhere really. And so I, I just... I collect all these, you know, just sitting there sucking in detail. But then you've got a, you've got this massive detail which I go home and write down in a huge diary that I keep if I'm working on a, a court case, um, a separate diary from my personal one. And and so to me there are all these it's just this incredible treasure trove of observation. But I have to be really drastic about editing it mm. down. So that's how you get that tunnel like feeling because in that tunnel or that tunnel is what's left after you cut out all that detail. It seems to me that really is the, that quality in your writing, isn't it? Where you I think you talk about someone saying to you, uh, cut out the adverbs, you know, so that you leave these sort of you know, powerful holes or Mm. beautiful holes. Wonderful holes. Wonderful holes, that's it. (laughs) And I think, you know, it sounds like you do that at both a micro level to really tighten up the line by line writing, but at a macro level, Mm. how long does that take? It must take an enormous amount of time to win. Yeah, it takes ages because you don't want to, you know, kill your darlings because you love all that stuff. But but just as the years go on, you you learn to be um, more severe with yourself. And I don't know if it was... uh, Hemingway who says that you know when you cut something people will sense that there was something there uh, and they don't know what it was but there's just this still this little thing of energy that's there after you've taken it out and the other thing is I realized this from teaching writing when I used to do that and I, I was often reading people's work and I'd um, I'd say just cut this cut this out this bit and and they really didn't want to cut it out. But then I'd say, well, take it out and see what happens. So you cut out, you know, two sentences and suddenly the the bit of the story on either side of what you've cut out, a, a zing of energy passes across the gap where you took the piece out and you realise that you've improved it, that that that, that the, a bit of fat or grit has been has been buffed off it and suddenly there's the muscle. You can see the muscle quivering. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
Now, Ghana recently appeared at the Wheeler Centre's Broadside Festival, an event featuring guests like Zadie Smith, Monica Lewinsky, Curtis Sittenfeld and Gia Tolentino, all discussing writing and feminism. I asked Ghana about her own appearance at the event and her relationship with post-Me Too feminism and how it's reflected in her writing. Well, feminism was hit my life in what I suppose is about 1972 and uh, and it was uh, – I was thunderstruck. I suddenly felt that I had a um, – I felt that I'd been underwater all my life and I'd stuck my head out of the water and taken a big breath and looked around and it, it was uh, – it's had an enormous, enormous effect on my life. And there have been times when I've been um, shocked at – what other people think of as feminist behaviour and that's what the whole thing of the first stone sprang out of. Um, I, well, narrowing it down to broadside, I have to say that I uh, I went and I did my session and then I went away and I came back to hear Zadie Smith but because the acoustics in the town hall were so terrible I couldn't hear anything she said. Uh, that's a whole other story. But so I, I didn't go to the rest. I actually, you know, these days I, I really don't like festivals and great big bun fights and I really like staying home and lying on my bed reading mostly. But I, um, when, when Me Too's first started I, you know, like like a lot of women, I, I just rejoiced. I thought, fantastic, these guys are going to get what's coming to them. And uh, and then I don't know, like all like all political movements, it it seemed to um, start to become a, a, a um, well, it's, it started to be possible to be heretical about it. Put it that way. That, that there was a way that you that everyone was supposed to think and talk about it and if you didn't do that you could be severely have your knuckles wrapped mm. and um, I a, a kind of self-righteous quality crept in and this this happens to to every political movement it, it the tendency of human behaviors is to become rigid and to become um, prescriptive prescriptive and suddenly you're either in or you're out mm. or your interpretation might have a, a sort of um you might be too sympathetic to whoever your enemy is or you might um so i mean as soon as as a writer you can't go there you mm. can't uh you can't dump everything and just say okay i'm in and this is it uh, and this is the, where I'm going to be writing from from yeah. now on. I was sort of thinking uh, as well. I just recently read Catch and Kill, the Ronan Farrow. Um, I know, haven't read that reportage. And it, look, it's it's really fantastic. It's a work of journalism, and I think that that's you know that's something that's very true of you. That you are you know you're both this highly intellectual sort of uh, you know being that that really wants the rigor of investigation and looking into things to sort of come to a truth, not just accepting something at face value. But you're also you allow your passions and your um, heart into the page quite a lot as well and that sort of tension between the two is one of the the great delights of reading your writing is that you allow yourself to be human you allow yourself to be a person first and a journalist second quite a lot of the time do you think this sometimes makes um you know makes you uh like I guess engage with particular events or feelings or things in a way that that comes out as interesting to you, or is it a challenge? How do you sit on um, on particular stories when you're writing them? Well, I've learned that you're talking about nonfiction now. Nonfiction, yeah. yeah I guess because nonfiction, you know, you write it with a, a fiction writer's sort of air, yeah, but yeah. very much, yeah, very much so. As a journalist, how do you see? Well, I, I feel that I have, uh, I, I feel that I have a journalistic contract with a reader. I, I, in nonfiction, I feel that I, um, I'm not going to put in things that I've made up. I, I, I feel that my contract is, um, I will say what I've managed to find out, and I won't pretend to know things I don't know. I think that that's very important to me, and that's one reason why um, I initially would put myself into a text because I didn't know and I wanted mm. to talk about the things I didn't know and I wanted to talk about the process of trying to get to know them. And so that contract that I 
that I feel that I have with a reader is that I'm saying, look, I'll tell you why I'm interested in this. Mm. Uh, I'll bring my own experience to bear on it if it's going to enlighten anything, enlighten me or you. And um, and I, I'm not going to pretend to know everything. Uh, I, I've never been interested to write a book where I researched everything first uh, and, and then took um, an all-knowing godlike eye on the story. I want to be in the story and I want to be, you know, what's technically called a reliable, an unreliable narrator mm-hmm. in that you twist and turn with the story as it develops. I, I enjoy doing that very much and, well, not not only do I enjoy it, but it's the only way I know how to do it. And it, like in Joe Sinquay's Consolation, for example, you very definitely own that you are your empathies are with the victim and I think that that's a really interesting approach to, uh, to writing a piece of journalism is that you're mm. saying, I am not objective and mm. there is no such thing as objectivity. You can then, you know, colour yeah, you your can, way you, of looking. you can yeah. factor that into you, what you read. Mm. I, well, see, the thing is, though, when you look back at when I look back at it, I see that uh, in Joe Chinque, I and probably the same with the first stone. You know, I showed my biases right at the start, and that led me. I mean, that that formed the book in certain ways. But with Joe Chinque, I because I I um because Mrs. Chinque spoke to me in the toilets. You know, that's it was a very crucial moment, mm. and uh, I felt. Um, I deeply felt the pain she was in and it, it was very hard after that to well see the thing is I mean any any journalist who's trained as a journalist which I'm not um knows that you uh if you um whichever side of the story you approach first uh, if it's known by everybody that you've approached that side, well, the other side is going to close its doors to you. Mm. Or if you show your hand at the beginning, even just by being more sympathetic in the courtroom to one side, the other side are going to be watching you and going, oh, I see, she's on their side. We won't talk to her. I think that's why the, there was such an interesting element to this house of grief because, you, again, you allowed yourself to really be a character in the book. You, you draw that in and you give a, a sense of your impressions and you're honest about it. Uh, but, you know, you're in a courtroom. There is a sense of remove and you have reached out um, to, you know, sort of get a more complete idea of things. But you have a little bit more of a, um, I guess, an objectivity in a sense to to be able to observe um, things so that you can shift your perceptions uh, of of the characters involved. Mm. It is really, I think, one of the most masterful, you know, books I've read in terms of really covering an issue with both sort of heart and sensitivity and also that sort of hard uh, investigative interest and intelligence. Uh, how did you sort of balance out all those things and get that slight sort of sense of objectivity in there as well? Well, I'd learnt something from the Joe Chinque writing that book because really I, I got very deeply engaged with his parents and I couldn't fight my way out of that. And I, I so in a sense, I mean, you could say that that's a flaw in, in Joe Chinque, but I learnt that lesson. You know, I learnt uh, don't approach one side if you want the other side also to t- talk to you. But um, it, it just panned out that way. And also the thing about the... Uh, Farquharson story in this house of grief was that it went on for seven years. There was a there was a trial, there was an appeal, there was another trial, there was another appeal, there was an attempt to go to the high court. I mean, really, it it just went on forever. And uh, I I didn't actually do much interviewing for that book you know when I was doing Joe Chinque I sort of got in my car and drove drove up to um, Newcastle and went to the Chinque's house and interviewed them on tape and and uh, but but I I I sort of learned to back off a bit I think before I got to the Farquharson story and the thing was that a kind of intimacy can develop between people who are watching a trial mm. Uh, and and I'm standing at the coffee cart with my little offsider Louise, the little teenage girl who came with me. <laughs> Such a wonderful relationship. I love her. She's my favourite character in the whole book. So great. But um, but uh, I'm you know I'm standing at the coffee cart outside the court and and um, the grandparents of the dead children you know just sort of wander up mm. and say hello. We've seen you uh, with your notebook. What are you doing? Are you a journalist? And. Uh, we just got chatting, you know, and I, 
and I have actually gone to visit them a couple of times after the trial was over, but I never really did interviews I, because I, I don't know why. Probably out of self-protection in a way because mm. it was a terribly traumatic story, horrible. And um, and the horrors kind of, I mean, you sort of get this real sense of the oppression of being in the courtroom that, I mean, and that is one of the, the most powerful features of the book, that you're in this courtroom and there's and it's seething with this incredible drama, one of the worst mm. human dramas one could imagine, mm. that, you know, um, a man potentially, you know, killing you know, as we know, killing his children. children yeah. And you're sort of, you know, this weird sort of like uh, arena for observing the deepest of human misery, but you manage to do it with a, a strangely light, a strange lightness of touch for such a really, you know, dark, uh, you know, subject matter. Mm. It's It's quite extraordinary. Well, there were certain times during those trials when I really, I just didn't know how I was going to keep going. I I would stagger home afterwards, and and uh, and my my grandsons at that point. I lived next door to my to my grandchildren, and and uh, they were quite little at the time. And the littlest one would he was only just walking, and he'd stagger up to me and want to sit on my knee out the back. And I I just had this horrible feeling that that what I knew would contaminate them. Uh, it was kind of a crazy mm. feeling, I suppose. But um, just the, and and after the book came out. The judge in the second trial, uh, Justice Lazary, I ran into him somewhere, and he said, "Oh, oh, um, I, I see your books out." He said, "Helen, I'm look, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll never be able to read it." Mm. He, he said, "I," he said, "and the thing in it that I found the most in the trial that that he found the most gruesome was the um, when they when the police lowered the, the they got a car the same model of Farquharson's and they lowered it on from a crane into a dam and it had a camera inside it and it, to show what happened when a car mm. f- went into the water and I, I mean that. that's one of the most yeah. horrible things I've ever seen in my life and it was just the movement of the water and and just what it did to your imagination and he said I, I could never read about that I just can never bear to he said I can't bear bear it that's the thing I can't bear mm. and uh, so I mean the, the, the um, it takes a lot of work to slog your way through that stuff and absorb it and digest it and then write it with a light touch I, that's what the challenge is of writing that kind of thing and yeah. and and a light but touch how do comes you do it? Do well you... it, it comes from somehow being both involved and detached, you have to detach yourself, and you can. And there are certain points in that book where. What do you do though? Do you have a process to, <coughs> to detach yourself? Do you have a a thing that you can do to sort of say this is now subject matter that I'm working with? This is now writing that I have. No, to I'm not. Uh, um, I'm no good at that. I I I just kind of wade in blindly, and and I I thrash around in there until I come up with the shape of something. It's um. I really can't even describe that process, but I know that it's it's very slow, and a lot of the time I'm not actually doing anything. A lot of the time I'm I'm just staggering around the streets, um, you know, reviling myself for not being able to do it, or, or, or calling myself a wimp, or because you know, in court I, I used to sit there watching the actual journalists. I mean, they know how to. Um, they've trained them. They're trained, and they they know how to uh, take a step back. And I'm mean, I'm not saying they don't find it unbearable, but I'm sitting there just completely wallowing in it, and I don't have to come up with anything about it at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have to come up with anything about it for a couple of years. So in a sense, I've I haven't got that lifeline they've got, which is a deadline. Yeah. Uh, they have to back off enough to write down the facts whereas if you're writing a book about something you're submerged in it Mm. and it really does make you think though about the the necessity of you know to really get to the the heart of stories you have to sit with them a bit and you you do need maybe a, a writer's approach to it as opposed to having that sort of strictly fact-based journalism mm. Or moment by moment, sort of reporting. We often don't know what an event is until it's far in our rear view. I think you do get very much a sense of that. That's true, but and I think, but I think that the act of writing is part of 
what you do to make things bearable. To bring this back to the to the yellow notebooks, I can see why then the act of writing can be both a you know a pain and a relief in a situation like that because obviously, you know, it's very clear from from reading these excerpts from your diary that you very much do work through things by writing them down as much as that can be a painful process because you are so exacting about your writing and the quality of it. Um, you do work through things. Oh, yeah. Eventually, it has that effect. I mean, you write your way out the other end of the story. I mean, not that there ever is an end, but uh, you, um, as somebody said, you know, the only way out is through. And that's, I I mean, I tried both those books, both the Joe Chinque book and the Farquharson book, I tried to stop writing. I thought, I can't stand this. I tried to wriggle out of it. And and that's how I re- realised that the only way out is through. You, I think it's Robert Frost, I think, who said that. Anyway, I had to go back to it and I just had to keep going. And you, you have to keep going. Which suddenly reminds me of something. I met a woman uh, 20 years ago. I met a, a Canadian writer who I admired and not a very famous one, but a good one. And uh, when we were talking, uh, I she she kept mentioning things that showed me that she was much. She must be much older than I thought she was. And I said to her, "Can I just ask you how old you are?" And she said to me, "Oh, that she was seventy at this point. I, I guess I was about, you know, in my late fifties." And I looked at her in amazement. I said, "But you seem so much younger than that." And she said, "There's something I always want to say to women. I want to say that you can keep going for a really long time." <laughs> And I've never forgotten that. I thought it was the most wonderful piece of advice, and and it's true. I um, you can keep going. You think you can't, but you can. Yes. Well, I I, I think um, this book definitely is something that writers will cherish because it is it is very much evidence that you can keep going. Because here is Helen Garner, who very clearly is, uh, you know, uh, one of the best writers that Australia has ever produced, uh, who has created, you know, really showing the the challenges of writing and, you know, the the despair and the and the highs and also your own influences and feeling not good enough for those. I think um, emerging writers, knowing that Helen Garner has gone through something like that as well, uh, will be a great comfort. It certainly has been to me and it's been so wonderful to talk to you, Helen. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mel. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.